What do you want? If I was more in my Jersey days, it'd be, what do you want? What do you want? We, we constantly have desires. We are always wanting something. If you're a parent, you've said that same phrase, maybe in a kind, loving voice, honey, what do you want? You probably also said it at times in a very impatient, exasperated voice. What do you want, right? You've been asked that question when you got to the front of the line at the customer service counter. You've been asked that when you, in some form or another, when you called some agency for help. What do you want? How can I help you? We almost always want something. Food, sleep, security, pleasure, money, approval, companionship, Gratitude, people to agree with me, life to go more smoothly for me, a spouse, a newer car, all those home repairs done, a better marriage, an earlier retirement, coffee prepared the way I like it, more pay at work, children who listen better, less pain, nicer weather, not that we could get much better than today. But on and on. We are, we are filled with desires. It was Calvin who described the human heart as a perpetual factory of idols. The, the word that Calvin used there for factory could also have the idea of a workshop, kind of that workbench where there is production ongoing, where, where our desires are being refined and designed and, and new ones are made. That is what's going on in our heart. It is this constant movement of desires. Imagine the the woodworker or the quilter or whatever craft it is that, that you can see going on in that workshop, laboring to produce one and then the order comes and there's the next one and it just goes on and on. And that is how our hearts function. They are constantly desiring things and refining desires. That's how you and I are. So this is the next to last part in our series on holding things loosely. We've been talking about things that scripture challenges us to hold loosely. And so for today, holding our desires loosely, the fact that they are so prevalent, so much a part of who we are, how do we address them? Not all desires are bad. There are good desires. We'll talk about that. There are desires for righteousness and, and things that God wants for us that we should indeed love and cling to. But how do we... How do we deal with the, the, the range of desires that go on? Next week, we'll talk about holding our lives and our health and our treasure more loosely, the things that are very personal to us, the, the things we can touch and feel. And, and then the week after that, September 20th, I'm really delighted. One of our members, David Goff, is going to be preaching to us from Job uh, on that September the 20th. David's a um, longtime pastor at Maryland, teacher at Washington Bible College, and uh, so Looking forward to that, and Lord willing, we'll get back to Acts chapter 10, then the week after that, later in September. But for today, I want to talk about desires. Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let's just think, sort of introducing this topic of desires as to what they are, how they work, how they connect with the heart. There's a key statement there about the heart and desires that I want to get to. But first, just that, that word desires. The Hebrew word simply is a request or a petition, something that I'd, I'd like to receive in some way. In the New Testament, the, the Greek word for desire is very similar, has a little bit of the nuance of volition, will. So it's the, it's the choosing, it's the wanting something um, that, that comes into play in these desires. Our desires reflect our 
our likes and our dislikes, the things that we accept and reject. It's not just things that I desire to have, but it's also me saying, I don't want that. This is something that I desire to not be in my life. Leave me alone. I'm, I'm not interested. I don't like that. I, I don't want to eat liver. Um, you know, just whatever the, the dislikes are in there too. That fits in that category of desires as well. Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century wrote his treatise on religious affections, one that speaks to these desires, these emotions. He's using the word affections there in much the same way that we would speak of desires, the passion that we have for both things of the world that should be a passion for God. He describes affections as the more vigorous and sensible exercises of the inclination and will of the soul. It's kind of a, a deep statement there, but what he's getting at, he goes on to explain is essentially he sees the, the soul, the inner being, as really having two chief functions. One is that as human beings, we have the ability to, to see things and ponder them and discern them and understand them. We, we can sort of mentally evaluate and measure them. And then secondly, he said, we then have the opportunity to act volitionally for or against that item. We then choose it. We either, we've pondered it and looked at it. We either like it or we dislike it, accept it, or reject it. And, and from Scripture, what we see is, is what we already see in Psalm 37.4, and that is that all of this, this thinking, pondering, judging, choosing, maybe rejecting, all of it is bound up in what the Bible calls our heart. He will give you the desires of your heart. That is the word that throughout Scripture speaks to our inner man with its volition and all of its complexities of how it thinks and responds to things. Craig Troxell earlier this year wrote a very helpful book on the heart and desires called With All Your Heart. And, uh, and Stuart gave me permission that I am going to leave this up here. If somebody, if, you, if you're going to read it, and it's, it's a couple hundred pages, eh, just under 200, um, excellent book on the heart and desires and how those function together. I'm going to leave it up here. Help yourself after the service. Try not to hurt each other going for it. You're supposed to social distance, so find a way to get to it without, you know, breaking any of that. Troxel, um, this book is mentioned in your sermon notes, too. He points out that the word heart, in terms of describing the inner man and its volition, its willing, its choosing, is used almost a thousand times in Scripture, more than any other single word. We talk about when we speak of words that describe God, holiness, we understand as a paramount feature of God because it speaks of him being holy over and over again. When it speaks of our inner man choosing, desiring, willing, it often, more often than not, uses the word heart. And so Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over or keep your heart with all diligence for from it flows the springs of life. From that inner man flow all of the, the desires, the, the activities that come out of our mouths and, and, and our, our actions. Proverbs 4 goes on and it says, keep godly wisdom within your heart. It's, it's something that is to be a part of our hearts because out of our hearts flow the words and deeds of our lives. It's, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we, we get the significance throughout Scripture that it is this, this inner man, this heart of ours, that, that is subject to all sorts of desires, that expresses those desires. It's now common when a 
public figure, a, a celebrity, an athlete, a politician, when they, when they do something, say something that is offensive, um, that is foolish, whatever it might be, somewhere in the ensuing apology, we get some sort of statement that includes something in the words of, that's just not me. That's not who I am. Bible doesn't give us a pass on those kind of things that come out our mouths or come off of our, our social media posts. The Bible doesn't give us that ability to say, oh, that's, that's just not me. Something, something or someone channeled that through me in some way because the Bible speaks in terms of our hearts. Those words, those actions come from out of our hearts. And even the ones that are sort of spur of the moment, seemingly out of character that happen in that moment of tension where we say or do something that, that just isn't normally characteristic, even that is born out of an attitude that is resident in our heart. Whether that attitude was one of, I want attention, or I want laugh, or I want a bit of revenge, or whatever it is, something within our hearts is producing that which ultimately comes out and comes forth in our words and our actions. We own it. And so the, the, the thing that we ought not miss here in thinking about as Scripture talks about desires is that this ability to desire, to choose, to will, the volition that we have is all part of how God made us. We are able to do that because God has given us the capacity to do that. And so when Jesus in Matthew 12 or Matthew 22 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your mind and with all of your soul. He's saying that because we have the capacity to do that because God has uniquely given man, made in his image, that, that ability now to love him with our entire being, our will, our affections, our rational thinking can all speak to our love of God and love him with our being. Those who are without Christ still love, still have desires that drive them, except it is, it is ultimately, it is love of self. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that unbelievers are dead in sin and they carry out the desires of the, the body. They, they do that which is self-motivated, self-pleasing. It's still that, that passion and that desire that's born in the heart, but it's from a nature that is opposed to God and, and focused on self. And so that's why Romans 6 speaks in terms of unbelievers being slaves to sin. They are without righteousness. It's not within their grasp. They can't desire it because it's not part of their nature. They, they desire self-pleasure. Before Christ, our desire, our will, our choices were governed by sin. Cravings that, that would seek to put us at the center of the world, in the center of as many people's world around us as we possibly can, so that we're the focal point, so that we're the one being served. That's, and, and ultimately, what Romans 6 goes on to say is not only is there that, that slavery to sin, but it also ultimately leads us to death. The, the familiar verse from Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, that, that this path takes us further and further away from God and toward hostility against him. Life apart from Jesus Christ, is a parade of endless desires because God has made us willing, desiring creatures. And so it is this parade of, of endless desires trying to find that which brings me pleasure and satisfaction. And so it's lust or it's peace or it's pleasure, or it's security, it's whatever I, I'm, I'm craving. And again, by God's sweet design, apart from him, all of those cravings are insatiable. They, they can't be met in stuff. They can't be met in people or in things. They're, they're designed to be met 
in the Creator. And so He has made us this way that we have these longings. Those who have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ have been set free. And the, the, the description of the new covenant that God gives in the book of Ezekiel tells us that the, at the core of that is the fact that we have a new heart. That's how our desires now are different. And so God in Ezekiel chapter 11 says, I will remove the heart of stone, the heart that was embittered toward God, that was not receptive toward God and godly desires. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. God says that with the coming of the new covenant comes a new heart. Those who, who embrace Jesus Christ and the gospel now are able to live in, in, in pursuits of righteousness, we're able to know His righteousness. We can pursue the, the fruit of God's Spirit. We're, we're now enabled because we now have a heart that is receptive to the things of God and desires those things. We're able to obey from the heart. Not, not some fear or some external compulsion, but we are able to, to obey from a new heart. Galatians 5.24, Paul writes, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's just alluding to this transformation. What that new heart has done has not only given us an orientation toward God, toward things of eternity, but it has also helped us now see the desires of the flesh and begin that work of what we would say the mortifying, putting to death the flesh and those desires. That, that we now have a, a new orientation that helps us to see the things of the Spirit and turn from sin. And now, believing in Him, see our desires and our affections changed. Now... Those who've been redeemed, we can long for communion with God. We can savor the fellowship that we have with brothers and sisters in Christ, that we, throughout this coronavirus period, we've missed that because there's a desire, there's a longing that is given to us by God with that new heart that now desires these things. We can delight ourselves in the Lord. And so when Psalm 37 says to delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, it is that now we are able to, to find great joy and delight in him so that he is able to change our desires and give us desires that, that are pleasing to him. And he longs to fulfill those. Take a look at Galatians 5. I just want to think on a couple things here and, and help us to, to think through holding desires Loosely, the, the, the fact is, the biblical reality is we have a new heart, new desires, new capacity, and yet the other spiritual reality that we all know is that that new heart is not yet immune from temptation and sin. We're still in bodies of flesh. We, we, we still are drawn to those things that attract us. As, as Calvin once explained, God's work of regeneration, the, the work by which he makes us new, destroys the dominion, the reign of sin. And, and, and he explained it does so by God supplying his spirit now to give us victory over sin. We now have his spirit indwelling us, helping us, bringing scripture to mind, helping us to be convicted. But Calvin then wrote this, sin, however, though it ceases to reign, ceases not to dwell in them. Ceases not is the key word. What he's saying there is the dominion of sin is broken, the reign of sin is broken, but it's still there. It is still present in us as believers. There's still this remaining sin. It, it, it no longer enslaves, but the temptations are real and the flesh is, is still susceptible to being drawn toward these desires, evil desires even. 
Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Paul writes, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul is encouraging, a scripture is reminding us here that, that those desires of the flesh are still there and there is an ongoing spiritual battle in, in our obedience to God and, and, and our desiring the things of the spirit. And there is this ongoing warfare that continues and we experience it as believers. When he uses that word for desires there in Galatians 5, it's a strong one. It's a craving. It's something that I something that I want badly, something that I am willing sometimes to even, even sin to get, that I am willing to argue with my spouse because I want my way. This is what I crave. It's something that even if it means sneaking away so that I can fulfill it on my own, I, I will do that because it's this craving that I want, that I'll, I'll cower away in darkness, thinking that I'm somehow hiding from, from God and, and from the shame that comes with that and interferes with that fellowship with him. That, that's the power of these desires. It's that strong urge to take something, to have something. And, and, and the, the thing we, we need to remind ourselves of here is it's not just, it's not just talking about evil desires. That we know the obvious ones, the things that God has said he forbids, the, the, the thing that he says is, are immoral or unholy, things that we should not do. Those are easy to categorize as evil desires, things that move us away from fellowship with him or away from fellowship with, with brothers and sisters in Christ. But there's also the reality that we, we get twisted up and fall into sin sometimes over desires for things that in and of themselves are good and right, but we crave them so much. We suddenly want them that we fall into trouble with the form of idolatry for things that, that aren't necessarily forbidden in Scripture, but, but we've now raised to this level. The, the, the desire for a spouse, for a child, for a better marriage, for a sense of peace, for a job that better pays the bills. Those, nothing wrong with those desires, nothing wrong with any of those things. But when they become cravings that begin to make us challenge our relationship with God. When, when essentially, the, the, the check engine light should come on when, when those desires are coupled with statements like, I don't know what I'll do if I don't get this. If, if this doesn't work out, if this, if this doesn't lead to marriage, if, if we can't have a child this time, if this, if that, I, I don't know what I'll do without this. The, those are the, the warning indicators that say to us that this desire for something good can now be moving into the territory of idolatrous, that I crave this so much that I'm, I'm not sure what I'll do without it. Troxel, again, from the, the book on the heart, writes this, we make idols of something God intended for good if we abuse it or live for it. Idolatry, I think this is a great line, idolatry is taking a good thing and making it the best thing or only thing. Marriage is a great relationship, but it's not the ultimate relationship. Food is delicious, but it's not the greatest satisfaction. Things that are good, but ultimately when they, they become the only thing, when they become the most important thing, and if we don't have it, we're going to get upset 
delve further into sin. So how do we hold these desires loosely? Obviously, as with any of these areas, there are the basic core spiritual disciplines of meditating on the word and praying and asking God for help and communing with the body and, and, and having fellow believers help me. But I want to give you three things I, I think that are specific to this to, to just help us hold our desires loosely. And the first one is this, admit the price and the power of our desires. Admit the price and the power of our desires. James chapter 1, verse 14 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. If there's one thing you take away from this morning, it is this, that, that as believers in Jesus Christ... We should not be casual or nonchalant about our desires. That we should not think that, well, desires are just sort of in that whole realm of emotions. They're part of our emotions, and therefore that's part of who I am. And, and I'm essentially powerless when it comes to my emotions. I'm, I'm like the, the secular love song that just talks about love being this overpowering thing that sweeps me off my feet, and I just can't really do anything about it. That is not the way Scripture speaks about our relationship with our desires. And as a matter of fact, he's making it very clear here that these desires are powerful and they're consequential and they're our desires. Notice how he says here, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This is, this is the heart now. This is your heart now working and, and wanting something or, or not wanting something and wanting to reject something. And, and our heart is generating these desires. And our heart is what gives the desires power. What, what we start to do with the thing that we are desiring. How we, how we think about it. How we entertain it. Whether or not we welcome it. How we play with it in some way is what begins to give power to the desire. Letting, letting desires run amok, he describes here in James as being like creating creating the trap for ourselves. He, he describes it in fishing terms, and it's like making a lure that will attract us, that's shiny, and, and, and it's exactly the thing that's going to lead me astray, that's going to hook me and grab me and move me away from intimacy with my God and fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's the picture he gives when we allow that, that desire, we sort of play around with it, we think about it, we measure it, and and, and, and it becomes the hook that lures us away. And James then goes on to say the desire gives birth to sin. Sin then matures and brings forth death. He's giving us a, a, a process here to let us know what we're going to get to in the second point, And that is we're not powerless in this. This doesn't just all happen blindly and out of our control. It is rather our own desire that, that we begin to entertain and that then will conceive sin. That, that then leads us into trouble. The, the, the temptation in and of itself is not the sin. The, the fact that something attractive is placed in front of us, an idea, a relationship, whatever that, that thing is, that's, that's the temptation. That's not the point of sin. It's when we then respond to the temptation and we decide to, to try it out and to go a little bit further with it. And, and he says that's like conceiving sin and sin in the end leads to death. 
As believers, we, we tend to think of that in terms of what unbelievers face, those who are without Jesus Christ. We understand that they persist in sin and ultimately are judged for it and face eternal death. But he's talking to believers in this passage. And, and his point is that sin is always destructive. Sin diminishes and it destroys. Sin kills fellowship, it damages trust, it causes consequences. And so when we allow our desires to take charge rather than our desires submitting to, to our own will, then, then we are inviting destruction. And there may be a terrible price to pay for them. And so what he says here is that it starts in our heart with our own desires, and if not responded too well, ultimately leads to destruction. There's something that will be lost as a result of our continuing down this path and not denying it. So the price and the power of our desires. Number two is we hold our desires loosely by believing that we are not powerless over them. We are not helpless as those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Making it clear here, as he's writing to Titus, Paul is that God, as part of saving us, bestows grace on us in an ongoing way. We talk about sanctification in an ongoing growth way, bringing us more into the image of Christ. He gives us grace to deny our flesh and to renounce, to, to, to say no to ungodly desires, to reject those. The grace of God has come to us to enable us to not be powerless in this situation. We're no longer slaves to these desires. We are able to say no to idolatrous, idolatrous cravings. We're able to say no to temptations that are around us. We are able to say no to the desires that get in the way of our fellowship with the Lord. We need not be taken by our own desires. The, the Spirit of God, who not coincidentally is called in Scripture the Holy Spirit, is eager to help us, to remind us of, of what Scripture teaches to, to bring to mind truths that we need to know about gospel truths, to remind us of God's promises, to encourage us to get help from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is actively interceding on our behalf in these things. It says it in Romans 8.34, Hebrews 7.25. Both are passages that speak of our Savior interceding even now as we struggle with temptation and desires. We have a Savior who is interceding for us, who is pleading for us, who is longing for us and willing to give us strength and power to do the right thing. In Ephesians 1, when Paul, Paul's praying for the, the saints in Ephesus, of course, he talks about them praying that they would know the height and breadth and width and depth of the love of Christ. But he also says, as he's praying, God, help them to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And he then goes on to describe this is the, the power of God that, that raised Jesus Christ from the tomb. He wants these believers to understand the power that God wishes to bestow on them. Your heavenly Father and your great Savior and the Holy Spirit want to help you and strengthen you to deny your flesh and to put away these desires. We don't get that help, though, if we withdraw in those moments. When temptation comes, 
if, if, if we decide to go this solo, if we decide to pull back, we decide to, to move more toward darkness than light because we, we want to entertain this a little bit more, we cannot expect then that the power and grace of God are going to be poured out through us in those moments when we are withdrawing from him, when those desires begin to tempt us. We, we need to know and believe that by God's power and grace, we are not helpless. And so scripture speaks of fleeing temptation. We can deny ourselves. We can resist the devil. We can be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might so that we might stand against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6 says we can flee youthful passions. He speaks of in Titus. All of these passages that, that tell us, command us to flee to stand in God's strength, even amidst the, the fiery darts of, of Satan. All of these things presume the fact that there is a God who is eager to give us power and grace and enable us to stand and to reject these desires, these evil things. We are not powerless, but we must be dependent on his grace. We cannot do this apart from that. So we hold our desires loosely by admitting the price and the power of them, admitting that, believing that we are not helpless over them, and finally, by fanning the flames of desire for Christ and the gospel. There's a, a superficial sort of wish that we could have when, when we go through times of struggle with our desires, that I just, I just wish God hadn't made me this way. I just wish I didn't have these kinds of cravings at all. I wish these sort of things weren't attractive to me, and I, I just... I just wish God hadn't made me this way. But, but the point, the very point is that God made us this way. And for those of us who are redeemed, now has given us a new heart and new desires for the very purpose that we would have desires to love him and to serve him. He wants us to be a, a passionate people who have strong affections so that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, our mind, and our soul, and that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. He has given us those passions so that they would be used in that ministry, that, that we would love God and love others passionately and that we would zealously seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That, that those would be things that we would, our passions would be driven toward. It says that all over scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That is, that is desire. I, I desire to do what in everything, I desire to do it in a way that brings glory to God. If we live, Romans 14, 8, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord's. We are the Lord's. And then Paul in Galatians 2, 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's given us a new heart and is filling it with desire so that we would now live for him, that we would pour that same emotion and affection in serving him. Edwards reminds us, convicts us of the opposite, how common it is among man that, that their affections are much more exercised and engaged in other matters, in worldly interests, in outward delights, in their honor and reputation and their natural relations. 
His point is, it, it just takes observation from personal experience to know that in all of those things, we do have eager desires and strong affections. There, there are passions that go on in our hearts, even for those of us who would be in the introverted category that don't express that very openly. We understand that our hearts are still desiring and, and still longing. We, we get passionate about things, our careers, our families, our interests, our, our appearance and how other people see me. I, I get concerned and invested in, in, in these sorts of things in, in our car, our house and fixing things up. We get passionate about our sports team, right? And, and, and we, we have great desires in all of these areas. And none of that necessarily is sinful. But the aim of scripture is, is to say, God, God has given us these desires love him and to glorify him. It's not to, it's not to quench our desires, it's not to sedate us so that we all just sort of become emotionless zombies, but rather God is desiring to nurture our zeal for righteousness, that we would have passions that are Christ-like, that would long for what Christ longs for our neighbors and our families and, and our communities. The call of scripture is that we would be eager to desire the things that Christ desires that we would have passions for those, and, and that we reflect on how we have been loved by God, that, that we would be driven by desire for Christ because we are meditating on the truth that says he loved us with this everlasting love. He chose us from eternity past. He has saved us. He, he gave his son to redeem us, who gave himself as a sacrifice on the cross. And, and all of that truth should not be just simple facts that we rehearse. That should stir our affections. We need to fan those flames by meditating on those things and, and considering them, not just as we sing songs on Sunday morning, but all through the week pondering how God has changed us given us a new heart. Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ is coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Those who are not just eager on the bad days when, when we're tempted then to say, oh, I wish Jesus would come back. It's such an awful day and everything is wrong and I just, just wish Jesus would come back. But, but having that eager anticipation even on the good days that says this is good and I'm glad for where God has put me, but I am I'm eager for even more with him eager to be in his presence. Titus 2.14 says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself the people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, who, who have desires that are passionate and energetic to serve, to minister to the needs of others and to be like Christ. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's a passage that talks about marriage and singleness um, God's talking about relationships in, in this passage. We typically go there on, on, on those who are single and being content. And near the end of that in 1 Corinthians 7.35, Paul wrote, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Whatever state you're in, the desire is that we show devotion to the Lord, that our desires be first and foremost for him, and that we find peace in that over and over again. Scripture is teaching us to, to reorient our desires, to bring them into submission, and to turn them back toward the glory of God. And, and to do that, we must fan the flames of those desires. 
we live on, on the horizontal plane. And so the world is, is constantly putting before us desirable things. The world is constantly putting before us things that, that are powerful and that compete for my time and my attention and, and my devotion. It is constantly, the world is constantly trying to stir my heart toward making me devoted toward someone or something here first and foremost. We counter that by, by meditating on, contemplating, thinking about the greatness of our God, reading about his love for us, reading about his calling of us and his dying for us by remembering what Christ has done, by being around his people so that we can mutually encourage each other to, to think on these things and to see what it is that we have in Christ, and, and by also contemplating the marvels of what lies before us, that this life is brief, and when it ends, we've got glorious eternity before us. Those are the kind of things that he's, he's urging us to meditate on so that they might fan the flames of desire, because our hearts are generating desires. Some of you, even in this moment, are thinking about lunch, thinking about me stopping talking, thinking about different things that you have a desire for at this moment. And, and, and those desires are constant. What scripture is saying is, I want you to see the greatness of your God and the beauty of the gospel and of Jesus Christ so you would contemplate those things and long for those above everything else. I would end with the psalmist's words in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's not just saying, I desire you, he is, but he's also saying what, what feeds that desire is a reflection on who you are, God. You are my strength and my portion forever. And when I think about who you are, when I think about the, how weak I am, when I, when I think on these things, it just stirs me to desire you, to long for you, to be zealous for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we come before you as a people who um, struggle sometimes with our devotion, our desires. Oh, we, we see all of the things that compete for attention, the things that we entertain that compete with you. It, it, we confess that it, it's hard for us to even fathom sometimes. I, I think of Paul in Romans 7 saying, I'm doing these things and I don't even want to do them. It, it seems that when we contemplate the gospel and your saving work, it seems like there could hardly be anything else worthy of the kind of devotion that you deserve. And yet, it seems so easy for a, a shiny object to distract us. Lord, forgive us Pour your grace into your people. Lord, we pray that you would, by your Spirit's work, remind us of scriptures we've thought about this morning and we've been meditating on at home. And may your Spirit stir up within us a passion for your truth, for who you are, for knowing you better, for worshiping you more, more fully. Father, I pray that if there's anyone listening this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, would today be the day that you would open their eyes to the 
saving power of the gospel, their need of Jesus Christ to turn from their sin and believe fully in his death and resurrection. And Father, for we, your people, as we walk out the door and we set on a new week and all of the things that will clamor for our attention and devotion, Lord, we understand we have responsibilities and stewardship and things we must do. But help us to, through all of that, have a zeal for you, for glorifying you and honoring you as we carry out the responsibilities you've given us. Help us to, to be content when there are, are good things that we don't seem to have right now, that we have longed for and maybe even prayed for and desire, and yet you have and your good and sovereign plan have not answered that prayer the way that we would have hoped. We pray for a peace and a contentment and a trust that you are good, and that you are as worthy of our devotion, whether we have that or not, that you are as sufficient in your grace, whether you provide that answer to prayer in the way we want or not. Lord, thank you for providing for us that ultimately we, we are cared for and we are loved. And we see that again and again in so many ways. Thank you for how you look after your children. Lord, we, uh, we pray that you would help us to be eager to live this week for your glory and also to live with a, an expectation, an eager expectation that our Savior will return. We are anxious to be in his presence. It's in his name we pray. Amen.